Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This evening we're going to be in 1 Kings 20. And basically, the last time we looked at really the, the great prophet Elijah, you know, his, his ministry, uh, last time we looked at really a low point in his life, his fear, fleeing, disobedience, and then getting back on track with God's still small voice. Today we're going to sadly look at the dismal state of Israel in roughly the 9th century BC under the cowardly and fleshly and ungodly king Ahab and his wife is just as bad if not worse than him and uh, you know I, I don't have a terribly upbeat message tonight but see that's what happens when you teach the Bible verse by verse you go through the entire scripture and that actually tests a teacher it also tests the congregation you know we're, we're not always fed sweet things um, there's a lot of encouragement in the Bible we see this uh, regularly but then there's going to be times where we read things that are sad but, if nothing else, I could say that uh, let's look at the character of Ahab and see what we shouldn't be doing, right? And um, the title is, Some Just Don't Get It. For over 20 years, Ahab ruled the northern kingdom of, of Israel, and God gave him many chances. And, you know, I, I can't help but make a parallel with where the leadership of our country is going. You know, you look at both parties and you wonder, and there's some, we're the godly people. And I wonder too, you know, do people look in the mirror and we, listen, where, where did, how did I get to age 48? I don't know. It just, I still remember when I was a teenager. But you see your own mortality. And that's the, I think that's also beautiful how God and the aging process, it's a slow thing. And then when you look back, you can't do the things physically anymore. You, you show the signs of aging. But what we do is we see our own mortality. And hopefully, it brings us to Christ. Okay, it brings everybody to Christ. That's God's desire that all are saved. So let's look at the, the monarchy. Let's look at our country. Let's look at ourselves. And let's jump in. So, 1 Kings 20, starting with verse 1. It says, Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. There were 32 kings with him, with horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria which is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, it was divided in two kingdoms at this point uh, and made war against it. Then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants. And it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they shall put in their hands and take it. Wow. Uh, if we could put up the image and leave it up to see what part of the world this is all going on in. And basically, you have 
Okay, this is the Arabian, uh, really it's the Arabian Peninsula, and you have here is the southern kingdom of Judah. I know the words are small. And then the northern kingdom with Samaria right here is the capital. Here's Jerusalem. Okay, Israel's close to the size of New Jersey. And basically above them, Damascus is still Damascus. <laughs> Syria is still Syria. The names haven't even changed. So the Bible speaks about this thousands of years ago. So uh, Syria is to the north. To put this in perspective, um, in Syria, ISIS is a problem. And Israel's looking to the north and she sees Russian troops and she sees Iranian troops. And, she, you know, it's a little tenuous right now. So it's amazing how current events kind of come into play. But this is the Assyrian Empire, okay? There is a difference between Syria and Assyria, two different kingdoms. And the Assyrian Empire, and basically to look at modern, modern day, again, Syria is here, uh, Jordan is over here, and you have Iraq, Iran, okay? And again, the names have changed, but the geography hasn't. So Assyria, this kingdom's growing in prominence, as you can see, uh, between 824 and 671 BC. She gets bigger and bigger, and then she starts coming over and, and start gobbling up other land. Now, after Assyria, we have the Babylonians who start really here. Then, of course, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and you know, most of us, if we're not history buffs, we know what comes after that. So uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I want to teach the Bible, but I also want to talk about, you know, how, how does this jive with what we understand? And basically, uh, the Syrian king, Ben-Hadad, comes to the king of the northern kingdom of Samaria, Ahab, and says, listen, I'm, I'm outside the walls. My troops are ready. Um, we're going to attack unless you, you know, give us what we want. And sadly, Ahab, he's a cowardly guy. It seems like his wife was mostly his backbone when we read about him and Jezebel. And uh, he sees these great things under the prophet Elijah, great miracles. You know, the Israelites saw the glory of God. He saw it too. And he goes back to his old ways. He doesn't get it. Now, before I beat on him too much, it probably took me about six, seven, eight times to had strangers really witness to me before I, I say it took. I became completely born again. Uh, but some go through their whole lives, even into old age, rejecting it and become hardened. That's really a sad thing. But let's look at this. What was the situation and why did he do this? Number one, he takes advantage of the drought and the famine, right? Um, you know, country gets weak when things happen. Uh, so he is, well, this is a prime time to do this. Two, growing pains among the nations. Um, Assyria, again, is gaining strength and probably gobbling up trade routes, trade routes to the west of Syria. And Syria is not wanting to face them, the, the Assyrians, so they move more southwest to flex their muscles and maybe take a little land grab. And then uh, the, Syria, the Syrian king has 32 provincial rulers of city-states that are probably scattered around the Syrian area that come and besiege Samaria. Verse 6, in addition to the demands that the king Ben-Hadad makes, he also says to Ahab, you know, yeah, I know you're going to give me a bunch of stuff, but I'm going to send my men to search the palace, the palace of, you know, the servants' quarters, and we're going to just take everything that we want. Um, and there's nothing you can do about it, pretty much. And again, when you don't have God in your life, you just see physical things. So Ahab looks out. He sees the troops amassing. He sees the besiegement. 
uh, and, and he's, he's frightened. Uh, but again, he's, God's right there, but he doesn't, he doesn't lay hold of it. And again, we know people like that too. Verse 7, it continues, Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land, which he should have actually counseled first, and said, Notice, please, see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me from my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I did not deny him. So Ahab basically tells his elders, well, this is what happened, and, and he, he has no shame, and he tells them that he's pretty much already capitulated to Ben-Hadad. It's almost like an afterthought what he does. Again, he's, he's a coward, he's feckless, he's weak, and he doesn't stand for anything substantial. Verse 8, And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Therefore, he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord, the king, he's still showing respect here, all that you sent for to your servant the first time, I will do. But this thing, the second thing, I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back back word word to him, to Ben-Hadad. So basically, the elders help Ahab get a little bit of a spine. Uh, He gets a little bit of a backbone. But he reinforces to Ben-Hadad, well, you know, the first request, you, you can take all that stuff, but I, I just can't go as far as letting your men search and, and, you know, take completely everything. All right, so he doesn't really quite listen to his elders. He takes partial, um, he takes partial advice. Now, Ahab's God was the God of luxury, right? And uh, was it Abraham Lincoln? He said, every man will go through adversity. He goes, but if you want to find the character of a man, give him wealth and power. I just read that. <laughs> That's so cool. But here's a guy who's, he's got wealth and power. He's a godless man, and he just makes these horrible decisions, and he's supposed to be representing God's people. Okay? So it's almost like he put his foot down where he said, listen, I can't, you know, you can take from my servants. I'll give you some stuff, but... Don't take everything from me, because his God was the God of luxury. So that's where he draws the line. In verse 10, Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do, the gods do so to me, and more also, if enough dust is left of Samaria, Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he and the kings were drinking at the command post, that he said to his servants, get ready, and they got ready to attack the city. So Ben-Hadad, you look at Ahab and Ben-Hadad, and you don't see much difference. They're both despotic, they're both vacuous, uh, they both are men of low character, and Ben-Hadad says, listen, give me 100% or prepare for war, we're going to attack you. And... The problem with Ben-Hadad on the other side is that he's drinking alcohol, obviously, with his men and his leaders. And later on, we, we read that the drinking turns to drunkenness. Who does that before a battle? You know what I'm saying? Uh, so what happens is he, he has a lack of judgment and foolish boasting. And he basically says, let the gods destroy me if I don't turn Samaria into a handful of dust for every person. And they had these expressions back then. So basically, you have two stupid leaders here. I, mean, I don't use that word stupid from the pulpit that often, but this is them. One is a godless coward. The other one is a drunken fool who acts impulsively. Okay? Not that I'm condoning it, but, you know, all Ben-Hadad had to do is 
send two tractor trailers in there and say, fill it up. No, tractor trailers. Send two caravans in there, fill it up, and I'm going to take whatever you give me. And he wouldn't have spared one of his soldiers' lives. But again, the, the drunkenness, the foolishness, he's also a godless man. Um, and, and he starts to boast. And, and actually, again, I guess with his wife strengthening him and the elders strengthening him, Ahab, I don't really like him as you can tell, but he's definitely not a godly man. His response is basically, don't count your chickens before, you, before they hatch. So, in other words, their expression was, let, don't let him who puts on his armor, that means I'm going ready to battle, boast as one who takes off his armor, the battle's already won and I'm victorious. So he's like, you're putting on your armor. Stop talking as if you know the outcome because you don't. So again, he gets a little bit of a a spine here. Verse 13, we continue. Suddenly a prophet, now this is an unnamed prophet, approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude, the Syrians? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ahab said, by whom? <laughs> Who's going to do this? He's, and he said, Thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. Then he said, Well, who will set the battle in order? And he answered, You. <laughs> so it's, it's quite funny. Uh, even some well over 2,000 years ago, we could definitely find humor in their culture. But this unnamed prophet comes and he starts talking to Ahab. Now, we left off with Elijah, right? Elijah, and, and I'm not, listen, I'd love to meet him and I'd love to hear more of what he did. Don't get me wrong, but in God's eyes, we're all equal. However, I'm, I'm aggrandizing him for the sake of the reader uh, because that's what, I got to tell you, modern Christianity, it's, it's celebrity oriented. Um, they just see the big, you know. And how many times did God send an unnamed man of God or woman of God or an unnamed prophet to do great things, to determine outcomes of battles and such? Um, today, even in Calvary chapels, you've got these personalities that come out and, I mean, they charge like, you know, 10000 dollars just for like a 45-minute speech. I, I, uh, just a uh, female, I, I've seen it, female speakers, male speakers. My thing is... Not, I'm not interested. I'd rather use regular people that everyone can relate to. But that's, that's the thing. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch that again and why I think that's a really big problem. You see, Ahab didn't deserve this honor. But God, I believe, did it for the sake of the Israelites. You know, they were struggling. Um, and they, they would have suffered needlessly under the Syrian invasion. They wouldn't have stopped until they laid the place waste, especially with drunken soldiers, soldiers coming in. Uh, they wouldn't have spared anybody. So I think God in his mercy allowed the, the battle to go to the Israelite army or the military. And I love verse 14. Ahab says, who will set the battle in order? And the prophet says, you, you. God is giving this man, and he doesn't deserve it, every chance imaginable to change, to change. Now let's put Ahab aside for a minute. Again, in the age of big Christianity, big Western Christianity, here's the big problem. The average person who, starting with me and everybody, to me, I I don't see celebrities. I don't care who you are. I don't care how big your name is. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. When we start getting into celebrity Christianity, what happens is when God wants to use 
you, or you, or you, you go, well, who am I? I don't have a big name. I didn't go to seminary. And that's the problem. Because God often uses, and, and Elijah didn't look at himself as, as a huge person either. You, when you, if you were with us for the last few chapters, he, he got scared, he got frightened, and he fled in fear. People go, Elijah, I never knew that about him. Yes, because he was a human being. When you cut him, he bled like we bleed. So I, I think the point I'm trying to get here is that whoever God uses in this room, you know, just be available. Just be available. Uh, I'm amazed because as I'm looking around the room, I see many of you who have brought people to church. That's fantastic. You know what that shows me? It shows me that when you go out into the world, you're actually salt and light. You're actually setting a good example. I'm, I'm looking around the room. I don't have to say names. You guys have brought people into the church because if the person at work or in your neighborhood thought you were a bum or you were no good, why would they go to your church? Because it hasn't changed you. You see where I'm going with this? That's the beauty of how God uses individuals and again, they don't always have to have a name. Verse 15, we continue. Then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. So they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. The young leaders of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol and they told him, saying, men are coming out of Samaria. So he said, again, in his drunken foolishness, he says, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. If they have come out for war, take them alive. I don't know if he misspoke or he just wanted them to capture him regardless one way or the other. Then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them, and each one killed his man, so the Syrians fled. And Israel pursued them, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. So Ahab is obedient to the prophet, and Israel prevails. And basically, Israel has 232 provincial leaders, which is smart. You know, this is just delegating authority. And they have 7,000 troops that go out and accost the Syrians. The Syrians, in their pride and poor judgment because of the alcohol, couldn't imagine that Israel would come out and be ready for war and take them because they were the ones that started to pick the fight with Israel and the king kind of capitulated. Maybe they got over, um, you know, they overestimated their own power and, and fear. Verse 17 and 18, again, the Syrian leaders in their pride because of the, the drunkenness. So you guys mostly know my testimony. Uh, back in the day, I'm not proud of it, but it is an open testimony. I drank a lot of alcohol. I spent a lot of times in the bars. And I have to tell you that I kind of laugh when I read this because in their drunkenness, they would say stupid things. It, back in the day, I don't know if they still use it because I'm out of the scene, we used to call that beer muscles. <laughs> a person has a few beers and all of a sudden they think they're, and actually they're worse because it, 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 it it slows the brain functioning down, the motor uh, responses and such. So you have a, a false inflated view of yourself, but the truth is you're actually slower. And, uh, <laughs> and it's not pretty to watch, but <laughs> in his pride, um, you know, the Syrians end up losing. Now I have to say this too, I wonder if the Syrian army maybe saw the foolishness of their leaders and... Uh, going out to fight. Of course, God won the battle, but part of it maybe was the uh, demoralization of the troops. Um, 
You know, if you've ever served in the military or police or whatever, um, and you go to go to battle or do something dangerous, and you have a leader who's a poor leader, for whatever reason, it could be a frightening experience. Because you're like, well, how's this going to end out? I don't have confidence in my leader. Um, and, and I don't want to read too much into it. Verse 21, what it shows too is that Ahab comes out. It says, then he came out. Now, uh, usually what happened was the kings would go out to battle with their troops. And that would raise the morale of the troops because the king was leading them. But in this case, we see maybe Ahab, you know, he hears it all and he sees them starting to win. So then he rides out on his horse. I don't, again, I don't think much of Ahab, but neither does the word of God when it speaks about him. So, verse 22. And, and it's still, it still doesn't matter to him. He still falters, this guy. Again, the title is, Some Just Don't Get It. And he doesn't get it. Verse 22. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go, strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do. For in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you. So the fight's not over, king. They're going to come back and they're going to attack again in the spring. And you need to know this. Now remember, only, who, how, only God could know this. All right? You could speculate. You could think, well, I've decimated them. But maybe, maybe Israel could get prideful and then they start to lose. So the prophet goes to the king and says, listen, it's not over. It looks good from here. But it's going to happen again in the spring. And you need to know this. And it reminds me of the spiritual battles that we deal with too. The ups and downs of life. The, and, and we talked about this in, in Nehemiah. Actually, we talk about this in every book of the Bible that we read. You know, if we're really in the battle spiritually as Christians, we're going to have our mountaintop experiences like Elijah and our valley experiences like Elijah and everybody else in the Scripture. Uh, but if you're serving God, God will tip you off to things. That I find fascinating. I mean, sometimes in my prayer time where I'm listening to God, he specifically tells me things to look out for that are coming down the road. And, you, man, you just know. You just know he's with you when that's that. Like, where did that come from? There's nobody in the house. Who said that? You know what I'm saying? But it's like he speaks to your heart. He tells you. Um, and, you know, yeah, Ahab wasn't great, but, again, I believe he did it for the, for the sake of the people. Verse 23, and, of course, for his namesake. Verse 23 then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are the gods of the hills, therefore they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, then surely we will be stronger than they. So do this thing. Dismiss the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places. And you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. You know, strategy. I mean, ser seriously, you're not a good military leader if you don't strategize. Except God can change things. When we look at the Revolutionary War, we look at World War II, we look at some amazing battles in history, you say there's no way that they should have won. It's not always about strategy. Strategy's great. Weather can totally turn your plan on its ears. The German panzers and some of their t tanks were so heavy 
and they would go through mud and snow and they ended up getting stuck and they couldn't even use their tanks. Did God have a hand in some of that? I'm sure he did. So again, you man plans, but God eventually determines the outcome. I think it's fascinating. Now, so, and his guys are saying it's a two-pronged strategy. The first prong, well, the second prong is how do we do the military thing? Let's remove the kings, put generals in there or captains. But the first thing that they said was, well, it's a God problem. You know, the Israelites worship a God of, of the hills, but if we get them in the plains, you, our God is better in the plains. You know what I'm saying? And today we see that too, right? Worldly strategies and a God in our own making. Some people today worship the gods of wealth. Oh, I, I would never do that. Well, maybe your lifestyle shows that you do that. You know, some today uh, worship the god of the weather, the god of the, the crops, um, Poseidon, Neptune, Baal, you know, the weather gods, <laughs> right? However, God, the real God, is the god of everything. And some worship all those gods, and then the, the chief gods, just so he doesn't get upset, and he can help the other gods, help them with, oh my goodness. Sometimes I talk to people who are polytheists, believing in more than one God, and there's some religions that follow that, and they're confused themselves. I actually ask the questions. So who do you pray to? Well, this one, and, and this one too, and well, how many gods do you have? Well, we could have millions. Well, do you write all their names down? Is it in your computer? I mean, and before computers, how did everybody remember all those gods' names? And what if you insult the one God, and what if the guy you're fo- God you're following is not as strong as the one that you forgot about? And, and I remember one time going out on the street and witnessing, uh, in Jamesburg, and the guy got confused himself. I'm like, well, if you're, this is your religion. You're con- I'm confused, bro. How about just following God? You know, let me tell you about the God that I follow. He's got the planes covered. He's got the weather covered. He's also the chief God. He's the chief cook and bottle washer. He does everything. You know, follow my God. Oh, that's interesting. I think I'll consider that. And that's how the conversation went. It was fascinating, but I, I seriously, I wasn't making fun of him. I just didn't understand, and he, apparently he didn't understand either. So, <laughs> I think, uh, but God is, he's loving. He wants everybody to come to him. Um, again, we can follow the revelation of who God is or make a God in our own image. Verse 26, so the Syrians muster up at Aphek, which is a few miles southwest of Samaria. So if we look at our map again, this is Samaria, and this is Aphek right around here. And you might say, well, Syria is here. Why didn't they meet him at the border? Maybe they're trying to be tricky. Um, maybe they went along the trade routes and stayed further to the coast to not be seen. And they're at Aphek and they're ready. They're ready to, to hit the Israelites. But it doesn't work. Verse 28. Verse 28. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is the God of the hills, but he is not God of the valley. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. How many times did he have to be told that? And they encamped opposite each other for seven days, and it was on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek, into the city from a wall. Then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left, and Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city into an, into an inner chamber. Right? So I guess they go back to their mustering point because that's what they know. Their food's there. Their supplies are there. I love the Scripture. There's so much detail in it, and then you can 
very easily extrapolate the rest of it. Um, you know, studying war and, and conflict for years, it, it's looking, you know, some today still use the, um, let's see, the, the German Sixth Army was defeated by the Russian combined armies, and they did the pincer movement at the Battle of Stalingrad. Fascinating battle. And the actual, the, the German army was superior, but they came out and they flanked both sides, and they squeezed them, and they cut off the air bridge for the supply. It was, there's so much to it, I don't know. <laughs> but it boggles the mind. Um, again, Germans should have won, but the Russians won. Okay, let's go back to this. The Syrians lose yet again. A wall falls and crushes, crushes a whole bunch of Syrians. Now, you might say, how could a wall crush that many people and kill them? Remember, this isn't a sheetrock wall. <laughs> this, isn't a, 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 this isn't a vinyl siding wall that falls on the guys and they bump their head, right, for those of you in construction. These walls were made of stone bricks. They could have been 10 feet thick or thicker, 100 feet high. And we know from other biblical stories and we know from archaeology that people lived in the walls. So if you wanted like a view of the, of the horizon, as they built the walls, they built living, it's just amazing. People actually lived in these compartments in the walls and they had windows and they could see everything that was going on. If you were being attacked a lot, probably you wouldn't want a window seat, but maybe you're adventurous and you do want it, I don't know. But the bottom line is this wall falls on and, it, and more Syrians are um, you know, crushed. And listen, they didn't have code back then. You didn't go to the permit office. You didn't pour a footing. So sometimes the wall was built and it was flimsy. Sometimes God knocked it over. Remember the walls of Jericho? <laughs> Veggie Tales did a good one on that one. So <laughs> verse 33. The walls of Jericho. Okay. Verse 33, 31, excuse me. And his servants said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Man, these guys are scamming left and right. They didn't win the first battle. They tried for the second. They didn't win the second. Now they try to use deception. Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes around our heads and go to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they wore sackcloth, which is usually worn for mourning. Um, you know, feel sorry for us. We're so defeated. We're, we're mourning. Around their waist and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he said, is he still alive? He is my brother. Now this is Ahab speaking about Ben-Hadad. bizarre. Now the men were diligently watching to see whether any sign of mercy, mercy would come from him. Probably watching his body language as well. And they quickly grasped at this word and said, your brother Ben-Hadad. So they use his words and then they repeat it, you know, trying to get this bond going. So he said, go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he had him come up into the chariot. Then Ben-Hadad said to him, meaning Ahab, the cities which my father took from your father I will restore. And you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. If you ever see um, in the news today and it talks about an archaeological find in Damascus, please open it. And if I don't see it, please print me a copy. Dam Damascus is an extremely ancient city. It's one of the few countries that really has never changed hands. Um, and again, I've, I've seen some... I bet you if you go there, it'll probably blow your mind. It totally reinforces what the scripture says. That's a little aside. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. 
So the Israelites had a, a reputation for showing mercy. Now, a lot of the surrounding nations did not. Remember, Jonah didn't want to go to preach to the Ninevites. He hated the Ninevites. They were a brutal people. They showed no mercy. Um, there was no G Geneva Convention back then. If you lost in war, you better run, because if that, that enemy gets you, some people were tortured. It was a horrible thing. But the Israelites were known for, for mercy, right? That's good, because they were following God. However, this was not God's will, and Ahab knew it. Okay? Ahab says about Ben Hadad, he is my brother. Oh, there's an expression that we have. It's called birds of a feather flock together. They're the same person, even though they're on opposite sides. They're both men of low character. This is not what God wanted. What does this tell you about Ahab when he says awful things about God? He has about Elijah, who was one of God's prophets. And he says good things about this horrible king of Syria. You ever see that today in, in American politics? People don't get it. I see Christians, they don't get it. A person's words will tell you everything about them. When they're attacking good people and they're cozying up, even in pictures, with bad people. You can pray for them. Hopefully they change, but they are not the person that you think that they are. You know, let's see who now is attacking Franklin Graham. Because Franklin Graham in the last year has really spoken up about our culture, about the laws that we're passing, about our... I've got to give him credit. Because in Billy Graham's day, he didn't have the type of pressure that Franklin Graham has today. This is a whole new ball game. So we need to pray for him. Okay, I don't agree with everything he says, but I think he's a man of God, and I think he's, he's concerned for our country and what's going on with the leadership. Okay? Now Ahab, remember, he's not in a place of trusting God. I don't want to read too much into this. So what does he have to do? He has to trust in alliances. Ahab feels he needs Ben-Hadad. And you know, now that he beat him twice, maybe it'll be good for him, for Ahab, instead of trusting the Lord. Okay? A lot of, lot of parallels in our lives. Who, who are we having alliances with, Christians, brothers and sisters? Who do we feel that we need? Who do we feel that if we don't have a relationship with them, even though they're bringing us down, that we're going to fall apart? Or our business isn't going to make it? Or whatever, whatever the case may be. Our alliances need to be with God. And those that are dragging us down, I did a, um, on a church Facebook wall, uh, I do the Consider This Theory, it's like a, a blog, and I talked about friends. Very powerful, so just check it out. What type of friends do we have? What type of alliances do we have? What type of professional associates do we have? Are we trying to win them to Christ, or are they negatively influencing us? Okay, the thing about Ahab, it's right here. Why did God give so many chances? Well, I believe, that, I believe that the army really benefited, and I believe that they went home and told their wives and hugged them and their kids, and they told their neighbors, did you see what God did? We were outnumbered. I can't believe blah, blah, blah. So, again, we, we look at big, the king. Well, the king didn't change. However, a lot of individual soldiers went home to their villages and told everybody about the wonderful works that God did. Amen? It's not always going to be a big thing. A lot of times God works the best in person-to-person -person contact. Jesus in John uh, chapter 4, the woman at the well. Person-to-person -person contacts. And I believe we do our best not going to all the big concerts. And I don't nothing against it. But that's not 
how we do our best work. It's person to person. It's doctor's office. It's the person in the next cubicle. It's your neighbor down the street. It's the elderly woman who can't shovel her snow. It's the checkout kid who looks like they're co- t- terribly depressed and they think that they're in a dead-end job. Person to person contact. Got to get the big out of our heads. Okay? Verse 35. 35. I'm very unorthodox, as you can tell. <laughs> now, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor, this is very bizarre, so it's, it's just, it gives you small pieces, so let me try to make it digestible. A certain man of the sons of the prophets, okay, he's a good man, he says to his neighbor, by the word of the Lord, strike me, please, and the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. As a new Christian, <laughs> I kind of circled it and put a, a star and a question mark. What? But basically, the, the sons of the prophets were, you know, like you could have had Elijah, Elisha, the, you know, the different prophets that Jezebel was trying to kill. And they really received direct revelation from God. And they were held to a higher standard because they they were supposed to be obedient to God and they were representing him. So he said, hey, you know, it was a, a bizarre request. Hit me, cut me. No, I'm not going to cut you. Well, the lion's going to kill you because God wanted this to happen. Okay? Uh, moral of the story, God tells you to do something, just do it. <laughs> I mean, uh, listen, we live in the age of grace, but the Bible is very clear. That's going to run out at some point and the times of revelation are really going to take front and center. And if you read Revelation, let me tell you something. The time to come to Christ is now. It's tonight. Don't wait another day because things are going to change. And God is going to have to pour out his judgment. He has no choice. Uh, let's see. Well, so judgment's going to come. Uh, and, you, and, you know, he was in, I guess you could say, I don't know the guy's heart, so I, I don't want to get into that road of speculating. But. I could see today there's a lot of false ministries. They call themselves Christ and they're either cults or they take advantage of the people or they're trying to fleece them. And, you know, one day God's going to deal with them. He's going to say, I never knew you. But we did miracles in your name. But we said Jesus. You know, we, we did this and we did that. And there was a fish on our moniker in the ministry. And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Verse 37. Those are the words nobody wants to hear. And he found another man. So the prophet finds another man in his group there and he says strike me please so the man struck him inflicting a wound now the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes now as the king passed by he cried out to the king and said your servant went out into the midst of the battle and there a man speaking about himself okay and there a man came over and brought a man to me a prisoner and said guard this man if by any means he is missing your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And while your servant was busy here and there, I was distracted, he was gone. I lost the prisoner. And the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be, you yourself have decided it. In other words, you got what you deserved. Now this is Ahab, okay? Then he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man, Ben-Hadad, whom I appointed to utter destruction. Therefore, your life shall go for, the, for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. Now, 
often in the Bible, you know, in, in these times, there were very poignant object lessons that needed to, to come out. And this was an object lesson. And I kind of do object lessons, you know, Pastor Vinny does, but we haven't cut anybody yet. You know, Pastor Vinny, no, don't get any ideas, okay? I'll cut you. So he says, cut me. He won't do it. He finds somebody else. The guy does cut him. He has a wound, and he dresses up as a soldier, and he does an object lesson. But what basically King Ahab does is, by pronouncing judgment on this person, he pronounced judgment on himself because he was the man who actually lost. Remember David? Remember Nathan? The man had all these sheep and... His neighbor who was a poor man, had one little ewe lamb, and, and um, that man could have taken any of his sheep, but he took the only lamb that the poor man had. David was furious and pronounced judgment, but David repented. Ahab did not. There's a difference. Um, you know, we can get so jazzed up and so excited about somebody doing something wrong, and we don't see that we could be doing the same thing. Isn't that amazing? You know, I tell you what, my sins look so much worse when you guys do them. They really do. I'm just being honest. Then when I do them, yeah, because it's me, for heaven's sake, right? But, you know, sometimes God has a way of showing us ourselves without using a mirror, okay? Once again, the, I call him the man-child. Ahab goes home depressed. But it doesn't take long for his manipulative wife to get him to cheer up by killing, and this is the next chapter, killing a man and taking some of his only possessions. Um, you, so we see that Ahab is, like Judas, was remorseful, not necessarily repentant. Repentance leads to change. Remorse is, oh, I feel bad. Oh, I got in trouble. You know what I'm saying? But repentance is, it's deeper than that. It actually leads to a change of behavior. God is a long-suffering God, but God must eventually deal with sin. We could look at the Bible. Great. We looked at the Bible. We'll go home. Ahab was a bad guy. I don't want to be like him. And that's it. Or we could look at ourselves and say, wow, that's something I never want to do. I never want to get caught up in. I never want to get to the point where I see so, many, so much of God's miracles and so many things he does, and it's a common thing to me like Ahab. He saw it. He saw it. He saw it. He saw it. And what did he do? He kept acting in the flesh. And, and I see Christians get discouraged. And we, sh All right, let, me, let me back up for a minute. We could be frustrated. It could bother us because where is our country going? You know, what are the laws? Where are they taking us? Who are the people that are running this country? There's a lot of them. How many are they deceiving? And it can be frustrating. And will the next person be any better? But I try to say this, and I've heard this from pastors too, to Christians is, it doesn't matter who's in the White House. It matters who's on the throne, right? Wicked King Ahab was in the, as the king of Israel in the palatial mansion. But you know what? God was still working in Israel. So brothers and sisters, it isn't a politician that's going to deliver us, right? God has already delivered us from, from judgment, and Jesus said, you're going to have trials in this world. He goes, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray.
You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you. Let's have a